Father, we we thank you, Lord, that you are compassionately mindful of our weakness and and our needs. Father, in this time, we as we gather before you, we lift up to you thanksgiving, Lord, for your sustaining grace and mercy towards Christelle and and her healing and and through the surgeries and through the means of grace with all the doctors and surgeons, Lord. And thank you for the blessing to to see her and to fellowship here today with her and Chloe. We give you praise and thanks for this, Father. And we also, Lord, lift up to you our sister Crystal Singh. Lord, we pray and ask, Lord, may she know, may she have a felt presence of your presence, a, a knowledge and awareness of your presence, Father, that your grace would minister to her in this time of affliction. And God, we ask that you would sustain her, that you would bring about through your means of grace, through the doctors, through the wonderful means of medicines, Lord, that you would heal her, that you would grant her restoration and recovery, that she would return in fellowship with us, Father. And Lord, that in this time, in in persevering in and through this, may she, Father, as, as she has testified in so many times of being a light of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would be mindful of her and and one another as we all suffer and struggle in this life, Father. But, Lord, let us not be weighed down by our circumstances, but know that all of these things, Lord, truly come from the Father's hand and for our, 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 our good, for our sanctification, for our dependence upon you, for our love for you, for our faith in you. So, Lord, I pray that the the reality of of joy in the midst of trials would be manifest in our heart and soul as we lift up our sisters and remember one another. And, Father, I pray, Lord, for your blessing now on on opening your eternal holy word as we we come to a close in this letter. But, Father, it it is so amazing, the profundity, the richness, of what we see in these closing thanksgivings and remarks of Paul, how they so speak of Christ's supremacy and the unity of your church. So, Father, I pray that your spirit and your word would go about and be sent forth to accomplish what you desire, Lord, in and through this vessel. To you alone be all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It it is truly a joyful and a sad time right now to come to a close in this letter. Um, It's been a great joy, a great privilege to go through this letter of Paul and just magnifying and examining the supremacy and the worth, the beauty of Christ and who he is, all that he has done for us. And what all Paul was was conveying in this letter for the church in Colossae, the church in Laodicea, the church in Herapolis, and even probably shared with the church in Ephesus. But how we see the love of this brother some uh, 1,500 miles away, the compassion, the concern he had for these saints and writing this instruction that would be canonized for us and for our benefit. And what Paul gets to as his theme is 
realizing and living in the reality of our unity with Christ. So, as we come to this closing, I I want to, for the sake of all of us, um, in realizing, too, that in studying this, I I can echo the words of David, that I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches in this letter. But I want to sit for us a reminder of three particular truths that we've looked at and we've learned. I pray that we've learned and have have made them our own in our lives and our families' lives. First and foremost, Christ is a sufficient Savior, a sufficient Lord. He is the main subject of our union with him because he alone is the all-sufficient, all satisfying Savior and Lord. And this is the doctrinal truth that Paul set forth in the first part from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. Paul expounded on this doctrinal, foundational section of the sufficiency of Christ. And if you want to go back and do further meditation, verses 15 to 20 in this section are the core of this, where Christ is set forth fully as sufficiently as the eternal God and on behalf of his finished work on the cross. So I hope and pray and trust that we have all seen and understood and believe this for ourselves. That the powerful reality in this stems from this truth for us is that we are either in Christ or we are not in him. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. Second point I want to remind us is, is in this grace-enabled union with Christ is it is all-encompassing. It is all-encompassing in every aspect of our life. We see this in the second section from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through to verse 23, that by our virtual union with him, we have everything we are going to receive and need. And the key verses here are verses 8 to 15. That in this all-encompassing union, we are privileged and gifted to share in, where we are made one because of our union with him. We can praise God that his perfect righteousness is mine, is yours, is ours to live in. It is for us in this to seriously reckon, to believe in heart and mind that I, that each of you who are previously guilt-ridden, guilt in sin, guilty in sin, and now stand righteous in the sight of our God, that we are looked upon by God as righteous because I am looked upon as being in Jesus Christ, as being righteous in him. We are now justified in him, holy in him, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. These are all Ours and our penalty for our sin has been paid in full. At that power, that dominion of sin that had ruled our lives is broken. All that comes from Christ and our union in Him, all of these privileges, all of these gifts, all of His graces are now ours because of our union in Christ. This is to be our focus. We're not to be distracted and led away by, by what? Remember? Legalism? 
Remember? Mysticism, asceticism. If you want to dig into those, the, the sermons are online for each of those that we went through. But we saw that the starting point and the ending point for any true believer in our journey in Christianity is our union with Christ, being in Christ. And remember, too, we talked about this, that the issue is not the closeness of the Lord. Closeness, we are as close as we are going to get to Christ. We are to grow in him, yes, but he is already close. We are as close as we are going to get to the point that Paul drives home to us that, and asking us, do we live in the reality of who we are in Christ, in this union with him? And what do I mean by this living in the reality of who we are in Christ? It, it is reckoning with the truth of who we are as a new creation, who we are now living in a renewed, true humanity, that if we are in Christ, we are, it, it is not an improvement upon us. Christ is not an adder. We have been made new. And if we are found in him, we are one in him, everything will flow outward in our lives from this great truth, from this great reality. And finally, I pray and hope that we all learn that our union with Christ is all transforming. This was the third section in this letter from Paul, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. Key verses, the first four verses in chapter 3. This is where we find the details of how our union with Christ changes, infiltrates, transforms everything in our lives as men, as women, as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, in their proper order and function and all the inner workings of that marriage union. Even for you who are children, this section speaks to you and also to us as employers and employees. And this transforming reality in our union with Christ will greatly impact our personal life and our daily pursuit of holiness in our ongoing relationship, in our maturing, in our sanctification with God himself. And as it is carried out through our relationships within the body of Christ, in their proper function, and all the way out to the world, and even, yes, to our very enemies. It touches everything in our lives, including our worldview. So our union with Christ is blessedly and most gloriously all transforming. So with that introduction, I want to read today's text. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to go from verse 7 all the way to verse 18. And as I saw and studied and prepared this and meditated and prayed about, there are some incredible truths here that the Lord wants to bring out, and I think they're very applicable for our body. So the Word of God here, Colossians chapter 4, it speaks to us and says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also... Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Very interesting text. Very, some obscure names. Some locations that many of us have never been to. Maybe some of us may have visited. But a text that's separated by some 2,000 years of history. But with great significance, spiritual significance and authority. But how do we approach these these closing verses and and Paul's closing authentic signature. I think what we need to do, what we have to have in mind here is to continue with Paul's main theme of what we've just reemphasized in this epistle, this letter to the church at Colossae. It is in Paul's union and it is in our being united in Christ. This is the theme of his closing remarks. If we keep this union in mind, Keep it set before us as we make our way through these closing thanksgivings and requests and even commands to dear friends, to fellow workers of the gospel. I believe it's intended to help us not only see, but should affirm for us three aspects, three truths of this union with Christ that will emerge and are very important, very personal relationships with Christ's friends, with Christ's fellow servants. And I'm going to give these to you under three headings. The reality of our being united with Christ is seen and manifested three ways. First, by what Paul feels about these people. By what Paul feels about these people. Second, what Paul says about these people. What he says about these people. And third, what Paul wants for these people what Paul wants for these people. So first, the reality of our being united with Christ is seen and is manifested in particular here by what Paul feels about these people. And what I mean is, quickly look, verse 7, Tychicus. Paul says he's going to bring information about all of Paul's affairs because Paul expresses his feelings and that he is, how does he refer him to? A beloved brother, a faithful servant, a fellow bondservant. This man is dearly loved. He is a fellow slave in the Lord. In verse 9, Onesimus, 
who is an actual slave and who is part of the main subject of the companion letter to the Colossians, which is Paul's other letter of Philemon, right? But this slave is to be considered and felt by Paul to be a faithful and beloved brother, one of your number, part of your body, part of your church, and and of your household. And quickly look at verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, faithful Luke. He was with Paul. He may have contributed in some sense to the transcribing of this letter, but also Timothy was identified with him as being present. But Luke, Luke assisted Paul by capturing and transcribing several letters for Paul while he was with him in Rome. And here he's considered to be a beloved physician. And Paul uses this word beloved intentionally three times here. And he means and feels they are one worthy of love, worthy of being loved. They are very dear to him emotionally. And Paul could have used it for all of these described here, but it's, it, it's descriptive of Paul's basic foundation of his relationship with these men and with these other saints, and, it, and it's characterized by Christ's love in his heart expressed to these others. But what about this love that Paul writes and feels towards these brethren? Well, under this first point, I've got three aspects of this love. First of all, it's comprehensive. Paul's love for them is comprehensive. It doesn't know any boundaries. It doesn't know division. It doesn't know any racial stigma or anything. Just like the gospel, this love includes all numbers of people. There were some Jews here, some Gentiles, some free, some masters, some slaves. We have men, we have women, we have likely very rich and poor, educated, uneducated. Paul's love for them is very real. It is inclusive regardless of their position, stature, status, gender. It is based on their fellow union with Christ. And secondly, it's demonstrative. Verse 18, look at the end of the letter real quick where Paul says he takes his pen with his own hand. And he says, I write this declaring not just the authorship of this letter and authenticating that I, 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 I helped transcribe or dictate it to Timothy, but he's making a plea for remembrance here, their remembrance in prayer. And he's also authenticating here his love to them, to these brothers and sisters. And this ties directly back, if you remember chapter 1, verse 24, if you want to flip over there quickly, Paul tells these saints that the reason he is in prison in Rome, why he is in chains, why he is under severe persecution, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. See, Paul is demonstrating and expressing here his great love for the Lord, yes, first and primarily, but just as important, too, as dear is his love for the Lord's church, for his people, even though he was in chains. But even those chains are a proclamation of this love and this gospel, this mystery of Christ being revealed while he was in prison on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of his church. How, how more expressive could you get? What better poem could you write of this and demonstrate your love, a person's love for Christ and for his church. This is a powerful testimony and example for us. Third, this love is fruitful. 
Paul's love is fruitful. It is affective with an A, affective. It is powerful. It influences even him as it is reciprocated to himself. Look at verse 11. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Paul was was greatly comforted by the love of these fellow servants of Christ who were of Jewish birth. Noted as those who were his fellow countrymen of Jewish descent. And very likely, I, I I would say very likely, the lack of response to the gospel by many of his fellow Jews truly grieved Paul's heart. Don't we see this in Romans? But this was a source of strength and great encouragement by these countrymen, not only by grace to believe in Jesus Christ, but now love, this love reciprocated through their service and devotion to him while in chains, while he is preaching in the midst of the Gentiles in Rome. For these men, they truly understood the kingdom of God, and it knows no boundaries. I know many of you have probably heard and, and likely even read some of Kevin DeYoung's work. He had a book that he published about 10 years ago um, called Why We Love the Church. And, and in this book, he formulates, he actually brings out a newly constructed word, much like our brother Klein does. But he, he starts with the Latin, and he, he relates this to the church in our postmodern era. What I mean is, we know of caput in Latin means to decapitate, behead, sever the head from the body. Well, he uses the word corpus, which in Latin means body. We know of Corpus Christi in Texas. That's the body of Christ. Well, Kevin in this book created the word decorpulation, which means the cutting off or separating the body from the head. And this, in summary, this book Kevin wrote is about at that time, 10 years ago, a growing and and still very present movement of individuals from various religious circles and denominations, but now even sadly more drastic in the evangelical world, talking about where people who are seeking to attain some type of spirituality without religion, and, and meaning they want to have a relationship with Jesus without rules to intentionally try to have God without the church. More and more people are actually settling or even looking for a decorpulated Christianity, one where the body of Christ and and its local assembly, its local expression is not seen as necessary. It's not a necessity. It's not critical. It's not esteemed as a very foundational biblical principle, function, role, or reality for them. And Kevin goes on. He listed about eight or ten other books that promote this, that are out there published now. I'm sure it's double by now, but even in their testimonies, even after being baptized, to, come, to claim a, a meaningful, committed relationship with Christ, but without any meaningful, committed relationship with the body of Christ in a church, thinking that Christianity is somehow some individual, individualistic relationship only, Can you imagine what Paul would have said in our day and age? 
what letter he would have probably written. Because, see, Paul sees a commitment to Christ that it carried with it the same loyalty, same commitment to the church for Paul, and it should be for us. They are, he sees them as one entity. And this is what we see here in this letter and this love Paul has here and is expressing emotionally in his feelings and expressing for these fellow believers who constitute this body of Christ, this local assembly in that day and age and even for us today, that those who are in Christ are the church and are those who constitute and make up the body of Christ and are united to him and to one another. This was crucial for Paul. Second point under this, the reality of being united with Christ is seen here and made manifest in what Paul says about these people, what he says. And we see going through, he lists here from Tychicus in verse 7 all the way to verse 17, 10 different people. He uniquely identifies them. And for some of these brothers, he lists two or three comments some weighty details and insights into them, and others he only makes a passing reference. But if we look into these comments and these remarks, even though they're brief, we see them in them the reality of the union with Christ. And what it entails in these valuable relationships and how it expresses itself in the lives of these men and women. And we're going to go through each one of these individually, briefly but individually. I promise we won't be here for two hours, but As we look into each of these, consider, if you will, how you are, how we are, how we can relate to them in one way or another. And depending on however many of these, brethren, you may relate to, think about the point of what Paul says to them here, how it may shed light on the reality of your being united with Christ, of how our union with Christ is to be made manifest in the body of Christ and in our lives. So first... Tychicus, his first brother. Who is he? Paul says he's one of our fellow workers, a fellow bondservant. And Paul is sending him, this brother, as his personal messenger to the brethren in Colossae. And he's going to physically carry this letter on a long, very dangerous journey. But why? Paul says in verse 8, that you may know how we are, I am letting you know, beloved, in this letter how we are. But even better, Tychicus is bringing to them a verbal testimony so that you may be encouraged in how we are doing. The we, Paul is speaking here, of course, is himself and Timothy, who's transcribing this, and Epaphras and Luke and others, but so that he may encourage your hearts. He sent to encourage the hearts of of the believers in Colossae. How, how is he going to carry this out? How is, he going, how is this going to happen? Well, Paul's description of Tychicus gives us insight in how he encouraged these saints. He is a beloved brother. He's one who loves as I love, and his love is seen in faithfulness, selflessness. He's a faithful, faithful servant. Simply by being what he is, no special endowment, Simply a believer living out the reality of his relationship with Christ, being united with Christ. He's a believer with these really threefold characteristics, beloved brother, faithful servant, fellow bondservant. 
His being who he is in Christ can be and is a great source of encouragement and comfort to others. Do you relate with him? Do you desire to be like this in Christ in living in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus? Our second brother, Onesimus, verse 9, is as with Tychicus, we see a similar description, faithful and beloved brother. And Paul says, who is one of you? One of them from Colossae, from this church, but now with Paul, and one we're familiar with from the, from the letter to Philemon. He is a slave. Remember, he fled his master. He left the city of Colossae, went all the way to Rome, and very likely was attempting to hide and just escape. Hoped to be far away, never to be found, but lo and behold, by the grace of God, he crosses path with, with Paul. And through Paul's preaching and teaching, he is now a convert of Christ. He is united with Christ. But now he's going back with Tychicus and with the letter to Colossae. And with Onesimus is another letter that is one addressed to Philemon, his master. And we know from the second letter that Paul wrote, talking about the letter Philemon, that Philemon, along with Onesimus, now were our believers. Both of you are in union with Christ, and you both have tasted of this all-powerful gospel and its ability to transform your relationships once and for all. This is going to directly impact the way you two will now relate to each other, and in the most basic relationship of master and slave. But now, Philemon, you are to receive Onesimus back, but not just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And Paul tells Onesimus, you are still to go back and still submit yourself to him, but in a new and vital relationship that is now based in Christ and that will not end. And it's astounding how this union with Christ and union in Christ produces this kind of change. How much do we need to be convinced of this transforming power to change, to make new through the almighty power of God that is found only in in our union with Christ and his singular means of rescue and change. This, this gospel of Jesus is the only healing balm of Gilead, Gilead that should, make, should and must be applied to, to broken relationships, to broken marriages, to broken families, and entrusting in, in with humble anticipation and faith that God will manifest his sovereign grace in saving both souls and relationships to the glory of his name. Our third brother, Aristarchus, a brief mention in verse 10, but he's identified as Paul's fellow prisoner, a Jewish believer who also sends his greetings to the saints in Colossae. This brother first appears in Thessalonica. He was there during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus and is seized during a riot as one of Paul's companions. But later on, he accompanies Paul all the way back to Jerusalem and then this final voyage back to Rome. He is truly a fellow prisoner with Paul, a fellow worker in the Lord's gospel throughout his time in Rome. He is with Paul, another man, a servant in chains and suffering for the gospel. And his love for Christ and his love for the church is echoed as well as as with Paul's. But there's something key here to realize, and most of us do, but I I want to bring it out to remind us. Our union with Christ entails suffering. 
This is a promise to us from Christ himself that we will suffer as he did. And it's not that we go looking for suffering or adopt some martyr syndrome or we're always out looking for trouble. But at the same time, we got to remember that this fundamental truth that our union with Christ does more often than not in some way or form bring, bring us into the realm of suffering. This is anathema to our current culture. Current thinking here is that something's wrong with suffering, our goal and energy, we've got to get it fixed, we've got to fi- get it fixed now, make it go away as fast as you can. I'm all about comfort and ease. We are to deal with suffering when it comes, yes, but we must never lose sight of this truth that we're living in the last days, but overlap of the two ages in this fallen world and in fallen bodies and in the midst of a territory, a realm that is hostile, front-on hostility toward Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you'll be hated because of my name. And if we are one with him, this is going to make things uncomfortable for us. And if our Lord has spared us from suffering in this time, absolutely thank him for it. But at the same time, we are to be ready for it. Fourth brother, John Mark, or Mark, I know you all know him, cousin of Barnabas, another Jewish believer. And Paul says of him, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. We know Mark, he is the author of the second synoptic gospel in our Bibles. He's had a slightly different ministerial life than the other two brothers in service. But if you remember back in Acts chapter 12 and 15, Mark is the one who deserted Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Probably hit him with the reality of the suffering and the toil and the cost it was going to be and said, I didn't sign up for this. They finished the journey, but this desertion came about and became a source of friction between Paul and Barnabas because on the second trip, They wanted to take Mark. Paul said, I'm not having anything to do with it. He took Silas and left. Barnabas took Mark. But what Paul says here about this same Mark is wonderful. The the story didn't end at the desertion of the first missionary journey. No, they, they have reconciled. Something wonderful has happened between them. Whoever initiated it, whoever sought it out isn't critical. And Paul even refers to Mark again in 2 Timothy 4.11 and refers to him as one of his greatest helpers. What a transition. Whether this came through Paul's hard line of discipline or, or through Barnabas being a great encourager to Mark or even through Peter because Mark was with Peter in Rome, whatever the means, God did a wonderful work of reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas and now here with Mark. But what do we need to see in this comment about Mark? It's that their union with Christ fostered reconciliation between these brothers and servants of Christ. But why? Because being fixed, being with Christ and fixing our eyes upon Christ and his cross, it crushes us to the ground. It crushes the hardness in us. God's grace crushes us, makes us malleable. It shapes and molds us, whereby reconciliation becomes the new norm for us. Even for the Apostle Paul. 
And now in Christ, we experience a willingness to lay aside our own interests, our own viewpoints, our own tastes and preferences. And now we would rather exercise humility one to another in order to bring about this kind of reconciliation as it is necessary. Our fifth brother, Jesus, who is called Justice. Jesus is is the Greek form of Joshua, Yeshua, and his Latin name, his Latin surname, Justice, means righteous. And Paul says of him, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Paul doesn't say much about him, but what he says is crucial. It's special. Justice is an encouragement to Paul in and through this service and ministry. His presence and ministry and his relationship with Christ spills over in such a way and a degree that it is a comfort in the midst of these very difficult circumstances and situation for Paul in this prison. And we see in this that being united with Christ really imparts comfort to one another. When we find ourselves in depths of sorrow and and weariness, honestly not doing well, we are downcast, even to the point of despairing of life. These are the types of brothers and sisters we want to be around, is it not? Those who are united with Christ in a vital relationship with Jesus and in a vital relationship with the triune God, these, these who have taken to heart to have God's presence with them at all times, to abide in Christ, to be kept and keeping themselves in the love of God. And for these who know the work of the Holy Spirit and enjoy his influences daily in their lives and in their daily sojourn. But these three brothers, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, are all Jewish brothers now in Christ, and they're willing to leave their people, their traditions for the person and the sake of Christ to stand alongside Paul to encourage him no matter what the cost. Our sixth brother, Epaphras. This is the one brother we know something about from chapter 1, verse 7. And we've considered his great evangelistic work, his pastoral work. And Paul says he is one of your number from Colossae, from their church. He made this sacrificial, grueling, yet necessary trip all the way to Rome to meet with Paul for counsel and help with the church back home to deal with the false teachers. But listen to what Paul says about him. He is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect, that you may stand firm, assured, fully assured, complete, mature in all the will of God. And Paul continues, notice in verse 13, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern He has much toil, much pain for you, and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. He was an itinerant preacher. But two things that Paul focuses on, Epaphras' prayer life, his prayers described as earnest labor, and his service, hard labor. We see from Epaphras that being united with Christ sweetens service. It sweetens our service. And if we are honest, how often do we expect or hope or think that prayer and service in the Lord will come easily and naturally? We want the easy tasks and the cultural influence of an easy life and no impacts in our service to the Lord. But 
If it gets difficult, then we begin to look for, think or something is wrong. We're doing something wrong. The reality is the very opposite is true, for we are called to strive, to labor in prayer, and to sacrificially serve, embracing the difficulty. Just as we are told to lay hold of him, what does Paul say as he, Christ, has laid hold of us? Because it's in our union with Christ we find sweetness in this laboring. For he is our master and our Lord, and now our identity has been and is being reshaped by him, even in our prayers, even in our service. We come to Luke, verse 14. Paul says, the beloved physician greets you. If we look back at the book of Acts, about a third of the way through it, Luke, who wrote that account of the apostles in the early church, he begins to use the third-person plural because he is there with Paul. He's on his missionary journey with him through his arrest and, and is transported now with him to Rome. He's been with Paul through all of this. And even in Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, we see a similar list like this of gratitude and thanksgiving But in chapter 4, verse 11, he speaks of Luke. He says, he is the only one with me. He's the only one. All others have abandoned. They're all doing their own thing. It is Luke that is alone with me. And in the sweet arena of Christian friendship, being united with Christ nurtures true friendships. Spurgeon He penned a statement on this. He said, I would rather be chained in a dungeon, wrist to wrist with a Christian, than to live forever forever with the wicked in the sunshine of happiness. Where do we find true friendship? It is only with those who are united in Christ. Finally, and speaking of the brothers here, Paul lastly speaks of Demas, verse 14. He says, Luke greets you as does Demas. Demas does not send his greetings to the church, but in the order of Scripture, I think we can see it's significant here that Demas is mentioned last and in such a brief way. If we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4 again, prior to Paul speaking about Luke, Paul says there that Demas has left has loved this present world and deserted him and gone back to Thessalonica. He's gone back to the world, back to all the temporal and destructive ways found in that city rather than abiding in Christ. We might ask, was there something Paul already saw in Demas, even here that gave an indication that his heart was not in this ministry or with Paul? Being a so-called fellow worker and so-called fellow laborer and so-called follower of Christ, he has apostatized and he later abandons the faith, leaves Paul, leaves the ministry, leaves the gospel. But why? Because he loved this world, yes, but he loved it more than Christ. Because this clearly tells us he never really knew him. He never was united in him. But what is this telling us? That that being united with Christ, it challenges presumption. What I mean is Demas may have outwardly accepted something. He didn't know it. He didn't believe it ultimately for certain. 
But maybe some of us can here relate to Demas, thinking about being in the church in Paul's day, not in the midst of what we experience in our culture of relative ease and comfort and temporal peace, but in the midst of of hostility, of, of very real frontal persecution, great difficulty of all because of associating and being united with Christ, even naming his name. And this difficulty had a way of identifying the pretenders, bringing them to the surface. They didn't stick around for very long with the true church. They had very short engagements, and from what we know of Jesus' parables, these are the seeds that are choked out ultimately. But what about in our day? It's very sad to consider and see that Demas could still live happily in today's church realm. He could be comfortable, possibly even in our church. I kind of doubt it, though. (laughs) Seriously doubt it. But this is a great problem today. We are in such a so-called Christian culture that just exemplifies a state of lukewarmness where a Demas could live quite happily with other so-called professing Christians. This is a great and grave danger. But when we consider that to be united with Christ challenges presumption, it puts forth the question, whom do you love? Do I love the Lord or this present world? Do I just like Jesus or like the things about him, associating with all the benefits and the nice people I get to hang around this? Just consider this. It's possible to be in a position of external privilege without experiencing any inward change. For someone to hear the word preached, to hear the gospel over and over again, and experience all these external privileges and not experience any inner change is a grave danger to your own soul. It's dangerous to merely associate with the people of God and never fellowship with the Son of God. And from a pastoral perspective, this can be especially grieving, not just over those who have been with us and have loved this world and left, although they are still not beyond the reach of the Spirit of God, and praise God that he may save them still, but yet equally true and just as grieving as when there are many who still love this present world and continue on in the church, because it is only the transforming unity with Christ that will transform our reality and alters the object of our love definitely for our Lord and in our Lord and for others. Where we come to fully understand we are only in the world and not of it, but we are in Christ. Quickly, our sister Nympha, verse 15 a sister in Laodicea, who Paul says, greet her and the church in her house, which shows us that being united with Christ encourages and nurtures hospitality. Boy, when we see that in this body, praise God. Amen. This is a reality here. We don't know a stranger. We're open to anyone coming over and fellowshipping in our homes to be welcome, to be served. And this, really, this, this home-centered gathering was true, was, a, was their norm for almost the first 400 years of church, the church, they didn't go find property on the corner and build these 
nice, illustrious buildings. But here Nympha is identified as one of those who opens her home, much like we read about in Lydia and Acts. And this is the meeting place for this local church. Finally, Archippus, verse 17. Paul says, see to it, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill, continually fulfill it. Notice here, Paul does not describe Archippus as faithful, but he's rather exhorting him. He is commanding him to see that he continues to fulfill this ministry he's received. Well, it's believed that Archippus was the son of Philemon and Apia in Colossae. And he's probably young like Timothy. And it's also likely from the word usage here by Paul regarding the ministry Archippus is to fulfill that he's the interim pastor in Colossae. Remember, Epaphras is in Rome with Paul. And so here is Archippus getting a reminder, getting an exhortation, really maybe a correction by Paul to see that being united with Christ in your call to ministry is all transforming. It it touches every role. It touches every responsibility, every ministry, every relationship in our lives and in the life of the church. So this, this union begs the question of us, are we loyal to our head? Are we loyal to Jesus Christ, the master of our church, of Heritage Grace, in our gathering, in our functioning, in growth and service and relationships to one another? Are they marked by faithfulness to him and his glory? And finally, back to the three main points, number three. Third point, third lesson. The reality of being united with Christ is seen in what Paul wants for these people. What does he want for this people, for these people? What does he want for us? It's in verse 18. Simple, profound, powerful, so very vital. Grace be with you. The grace of Christ in mind here. I want it to be with you. I pray that it will be with you. But if he is writing and saying this to a church, to those who are already believers in Christ, why does he say grace be with you? Because for all believers, for all true believers, saving grace is only the beginning, is it not? Don't we need daily, timely, strengthening grace to endure affliction? Don't we need equipping grace to serve God? Don't we need sustaining grace to remain faithful? Don't we need his illuminating grace to just to understand the scriptures? And don't we need encouraging grace to vanquish our fears? And don't we need enabling grace to obey God and his comforting grace in the midst of our sorrows? Don't we need fortifying grace to resist temptation and the enemy? This is what Paul wants for the Colossian church. This is what he wants for all the churches. This is what he prays for, for our church. And we've been spending significant time in the Gospels during Sunday school and and our particular focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his perfect work, his prayer life, his supremacy. And especially in this letter and in these studies, we've been striving to understand more and more of what it means as Christians to be in the Lord Jesus, to know the fullness of our union in him, with him. And what all this entails is a day-by-day reality in our individual and familial and corporate lives. 
the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on earth as a man, yes, and as fully God, yes, but we need to understand that his deity never acted directly upon him, but he acted through a mediator immediately through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything he did, he did as a man, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. He believed he had faith as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit, just as he resisted temptation and persevered as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, absolutely, he purchased the forgiveness of our sins, but he also purchased every grace that we will enjoy. Every grace we receive from God first belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, by our virtue of our union with him, in him, these graces, his purchased graces all belong to us. We simply, simply are to pursue him, and in him we received all the graces by faith through prayer. And this glorious grace, all-encompassing and all-transforming grace, Paul says, may this grace be with you all each and every day. Let's pray. Father, truly, your, your grace is magnificent. It is astounding. It is all-powerful. It is all-sufficient because it has all been purchased for us by Jesus Christ himself. And Father, I pray that through this final exhortation and through this study over the last two years as we've looked into this letter that your Holy Spirit has, has given us through our faithful brother and apostle Paul and through his companions, that we might truly pursue and understand and live in the vitality and the richness of our union in Jesus Christ that in everything that we are and everything that we do and everything that we desire would be for his glory and for his supremacy manifested in our lives. Father, echo the prayer of Paul. His grace be with us. And may it be with us this day to make the realities of your word alive and rich and active in our souls in our minds, and in through our lives. In Jesus' glorious and precious name we pray. Amen.